The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Belgorod as Russia battles saboteur groups on its own territory. And we talk about Russian prison culture and its impact on soldiering in the invasion. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday. The 23rd of May, one year and 88 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, and our guest is Latvian journalist and host of the Eastern Border podcast, Kristaps Andresens. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront. Well, hi David, hi everybody, hi Kristaps, great to hear from you again. So the... Um Whatever started happening about this time yesterday around the Belgorod region of Russia, borders, the one the area bordering, or one of the areas bordering Ukraine, is still rumbling on. Don't quite know exactly what it is, but let's uh, let's get up to date with, with what is happening, or at least being reported to be happening. So pro-Russian social media channels are saying that there have been explosions in Belgorod, the city of Belgorod, the capital of the of the oblast, and hit the FSB building, the security services building there. So we're now about 60 k's north of Kharkiv, in Ukraine, so over the border into Russia, 60, 60 k's between the two. So about 30, 40 ish inside inside Russia. These explosions in Belgorod hit the Interior Ministry and the FSB security service. So this came from Rybar, a Kremlin affiliated Telegram channel, and said the impact of the strikes is unknown. So quite where they're getting the information from, we should question. However, the governor of Russia's Belgorod region has said this morning that drones had been shot down in the region by anti-aircraft weaponry. Right. So what do we think happened yesterday? We, we still don't know. And I don't think anyone really does. So just be very careful where you get your information from. But it looks like there's two groups. Now, yesterday, we, I said there were two groups. I couldn't quite tell if it was one group that went by different names or quite what it was. But it looks like there's two groups. Firstly, the all-Russian, pro-Ukrainian Russian Volunteer Corps, known, you'll see known as the, as the RDK. And then separately, the Freedom of Russia Legion, the LSR. Now, they seem to do a, a, a raid over the border into Belgorod. About this time yesterday, Russian sources were started reporting that a couple of tanks, armoured personnel carrier, and nine other armoured vehicles crossed the border at the border town of Kozinka. And so, that we're, so this is about 60 k's northwest of Kharkiv, so in the Belgorod region, but but you know a good a good few dozens of kilometres away from the capital itself. So a number of Russian sources were saying that this group went on to capture another couple of settle, settlements, two other. Two other settlements all sort of blobbed together, but three distinct villages, if you like. A total of about five kilometres, this this incursion, a depth of about five kilometres from the border. Now, but that has been disputed by Usher, other Russian mill bloggers. British military intelligence today said that there had been an incursion and there was small arms fire, drones and indirect fire, that's artillery and mortars, had been used. So 
Yesterday, I was saying that I'd seen footage purportedly from the, the border checkpoint that showed armoured vehicles. I couldn't really ID them. I thought there were some big kind of uh, all-terrain vehicles, and it looks like they they were, but it looks like they may have been the US-supplied MRAPs, the mine-resistant armoured-protected vehicles. I've seen that from other footage. These are big old, they're wheeled vehicles, big, big-bodied vehicles, held high off the ground, so any under... Under vehicle mines, any route mines, any anti vehicle mines, anti tank mines that go off underneath it. Hopefully, the blast is dissipated in the few feet until it hits the vehicle, and then the vehicle has got a V shaped hull to direct the blast, hopefully, away from the interior. What normally happens with these things is the wheels get blown off and the, the large chunk of the main chamber of the of the vehicle sort of lands on the ground with the, the people inside alive but with a bit of a headache and then a, a task to get out of the um the minefield they've just gone into but mraps mine resistant armor protective vehicles work and they are quite big chunky things and i think that might have been what we what we saw yesterday so geolocated footage posted yesterday does confirm that that the border post near Kuzinka was hit by the group, whether it's the RDK or the LSR or both, we don't know, with this group that had in their force at least one tank. Now, the RDK later posted footage showing the body of a Russian border guard in the border station, which was thought to be from that Kuzinka border crossing point. And then later... Russian military bloggers had claimed that Russian troops have retaken control of all the settlements. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, just to just for completeness, although I'm not sure how much we should rely on this bit, but some other Russian sources have said that um, Russian forces pushed away pro-Ukrainian sabotage groups near Dronovka, so about another 20 k's northwest of of the main area that, we, that we've been describing, and the RDK posted footage many many in Bryansk Oblast well to the northwest saying that they they'd also done something there but that's there's only there there's only one reference to that and I'm not not found it anywhere else Russian officials said that it was a Ukrainian sabotage group and they've opened um, opened a terrorism investigation Kyiv has denied involvement in the attack so today's British intelligence report says that well over the weekend so from Friday until yesterday Russian security forces uh, highly likely clashed with partisans in at least three locations within Russia's Belgorod Oblast. Now, those three locations could well be the three settlements of that uh, from the the border checkpoint up to about five kilometres in depth. We're not um, we're not exactly sure where they're describing, but uh, British defence intelligence go on to say Russia is facing an increasingly serious multi-domain security threat, which is I think sort of wonkism for saying loads of people shooting at you multi-domain security threat in its border regions with losses of combat aircraft improvised explosive devices on rail lines and now direct partisan action and it just concludes russia will almost certainly use these incidents to support the official narrative that it is the victim in the war yeah i think they probably will now i think we should have a look at steve rosenberg he's the russia editor for the bbc i retweeted a post that he'd put on twitter i, I put it i retweeted it half an hour ago so check my timeline you'll find it and have a look at steve rosenberg he, he's um you know a very good source inside inside russia he's been talking about the reaction in the russian newspapers uh and he said he had to search hard to find any reference at all but in the in the government newspaper, Rosiska Gazeta, he found a small reference to this incursion as part of a larger story. And the reference talked about the sabotage reconnaissance group of the Ukrainian army had entered Grivanovsky district of Belgorod region. Steve says that, that it was front page news or is front page news today in uh, Commerçant, 
which said the Liberty of Russia Legion, which they labelled a terrorist organisation that was banned in Russia, and the Russian Volunteer Corps fighting on the side of Ukraine have claimed responsibility for these attacks. And another paper, Mazovsky Konsomolets, had a map showing the uh, showing the, the what we believe has happened from other reporting, called the attack a terrorist raid and claimed that shadow NATO instructors may be commanding it, although they had no evidence whatsoever to, to back that up. So, yep, Russian media having a normal one. That's great to see. But so far, there's been no sign that these groups have been resisted in any way, that anyone had been killed, they've been pushed back, yeah, which you would expect if after something such as this, quite an embarrassing incursion, if they had been repelled, I would expect to see all sorts of stuff on Russian social media channels and probably in the official, a brief reference to it, at least in the official news channels, the state-run media, showing or talking about this, and there's been nothing. So we can only assume that it, that it has not been repelled. Whether or not this group is still heading on, they've posted that they're heading to Red Square. I think that's a bit ambitious, but, um, you know, hey, can't knock ambition. Or whether they've just made their point and they've, they intend to withdraw, we don't know. But it doesn't look as if they've been rounded up and arrested, killed, etc., etc. So we will uh, we will watch that one with interest. And just one final final update. President Zelensky, he visited troops in the uh, Vuladar region. This is about 40k southwest of Donetsk City. Met with senior officials, handed out awards, and um, he said every, every day on the battlefield, Ukrainian Marines prove that they are a powerful force that destroys the enemy, liberates Ukrainian land, and performs the most difficult tasks in the most difficult conditions. And we need more of this force. So from today, we are significantly increasing the potential of the Marines and creating a Marine Corps, which is quite interesting because they obviously the Marine, the Royal Marines here in our in our military, they are naval infantry. Uh, but they have, I mean, for the last 20 odd years, they've taken, they, they've been on the, on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, same as um, same as the army, but a very, very capable force. So if they are, if Ukraine is building a Marine Corps that has great utility at sea, well, on sea and land, primary paterum, I think the you know, motto used to be, or is, then that would be very interesting, quite where they get their training from, the Brits or anywhere else in Europe, Dutch, very good, and um, or perhaps the US Marine Corps. Sempify, then uh, then that I think would be a very capable force in due course. And I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? You're back from Ukraine. You've been looking at this incursion into Belgorod over the past day and a half. What are your thoughts on it? I think this is um, a massive propaganda operation. The way That's not to say that I think it's not happening. I think it's something that is absolutely meant to be seen. So it's kind of not news that the Ukrainians kind of operate across the border and Belgorod, all along that border, the kind of Ukrainian side, it'd be Kharkiv region, Sumy region, things like that. There's been kind of back and forth shelling, little bits of raiding and so on and so forth going on for, for months and months. But they don't really talk about it. And occasionally something will go bang and the Ukrainians don't really talk about it because it's covert operations. And the other thing is you're not meant to, you know, there's this unspoken rule about not taking the war into Russia. This is very, very different. This is this is, this is all about look what we're doing. Put it out on Russian social media. Publish it in Russian. Have this the the, the Russian Liberation Legion or whatever they call themselves pump out their own their own kind of stuff in in the Russian language. This is meant to well raise morale on the Ukrainian side, but really to kind of sow panic in Russia and Belgorod. And actually, if you look at Governor Gladkov of Belgorod Oblast, he, he's been quite good with um, coming up with updates, actually, throughout this, if, if you if you follow him. He's avoiding talking about the actual progress of the of the fighting there, 
But he, in his update this morning, he said, look, my office has been inundated with the most lunatic kind of panicked calls. You know, there is not a nuclear catastrophe going on here. You know, we, there isn't a, a mass invasion by hundreds of Ukrainian tanks, things like that. Please stop spreading rumours because that's exactly what the Ukrainians want us to do. They want us to panic. And I think he's probably right about that. And it is definitely, you know, it, it's it's created resonance. And you, you can see by the chatter on the, you know, the, the Russian military blogger channels. I mean, right now, we've got one of these one of these interesting contradictions between the official line and, and the unofficial line. So so just before we came on, the Russian Ministry of Defence said they've defeated the incursion, they've killed 70, 70 nationalists, pushed them back across the border. And now we've got these unconfirmed reports coming out on kind of usually fairly reliable Russian military bloggers saying that there's another incursion about 40 kilometres east of there at a place called Shetinovka, and that's opposite Kazachalopan, Um uh, a village kind of uh, north of Kharkiv. Now, that's not confirmed, and I'd be very cautious about taking that at face value at this stage because the Russian military bloggers, they're propagandists, they have their reasons for saying things, but they also, like the rest of us, tend to get carried away and they are not immune to panic themselves. So if you remember, you know, a few weeks ago when the Ukrainians launched their surprise kind of counteroffensive on the flanks at Bakhmut, you had the Russian military blogger community was suddenly predicting you know, I mean, I mean, crossings of the Dnipro and, and huge tank attacks elsewhere and, oh, my God, everything's over. Nothing of the sort is happening. So they're as inclined as anyone else to spread rumours. But we have now got this um, this this second report of, of a second incursion, 40-odd kilometres from the first one. And uh, Chris Miller at the, over at the FT has just tweeted that he's spoken to the head of the operation and who seems to think it's still going on. So... It wouldn't be the first time, I must say, that the uh, Russian Ministry of Defence has been premature in um, announcing the end of a battle. But as so often, what is actually going on right now on the ground is, is shrouded in the fog of war. But I'm sure it will become clearer throughout the day. Thanks very much, Roland. I'm just staying with you. Dom mentioned in his updates about some of the media, the sort of official media coverage in Russia about this. Let's, let's call it an incursion. From your experience reporting from and on Russia, what impact will this days-long cross-border raid uh, have on the on, on the population? How do you think people are, are going to react in in the long term? I still think, to be honest, that because federal television has such a grip on 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 public opinion in Russia and is so tightly curated by the Kremlin, it really depends on how they choose to play it, how they choose to report it. Yes, you will see reports in Komsomolskaya Pravda. They, they have a thing, I think they've got a thing on their front page with their website at the moment about Zelensky's evil plan about why he had to attack Russia and things like this. But, you know, the newspapers, the tabloids aren't really it, not even the internet is really it. It's still really federal television, which Russia, you know, the Kremlin maintains deep control over. How will they play it? They will play it as this is, this is evidence of why we had to fight Ukraine. We are the victims. We are under attack etc etc obviously there'll be efforts to play down the significance of this because they don't want to be seen to be weak and to and to kind of ignore the fact that the russian border has been breached in a fairly embarrassing way but i think you can see here there's a pattern here right and you can kind of see what the ukrainians are trying to do you remember that that mysterious little drone strike on the kremlin a few weeks ago it's a similar kind of thing right i mean i i can't i'm not sure this is meant to achieve anything enormous militarily these incursions but it's it demonstrates an ability to strike inside russia something that says the war is coming home to you 
you're not as safe as you think you are. The Kremlin is unable to fulfill its promises about security and actually what they've done is they've opened an enormous can of worms that's going to affect everybody. So ultimately I wouldn't make long-term predictions about how this affects the Russian public mood and the Kremlin will seek to manage it as much as possible but it can't be good, right? It's never good when suddenly the enemy is, is on your territory. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Dom, can I come back to you just for a quick update from a defence conference in London, and then we'll go to Chris Stapps. Yeah, sure. This is a, a quickie. So there's the London defence conference today, hosted by King's College um, here in London. It's two days today, tomorrow, and um, the, Jack Watling from Rusi was speaking this morning. He was on one of the one of the panels. There's been a really interesting paper out from Rusi, which we've got to cover in depth about Russia's efforts to adapt through this war i mean the headlines i don't think the headlines change much from our our view that russia is not a is not a learning organization i think that's what the authors so it's jack and, and one of the other guys at, at rusi that's written this they've said that they can they can improvise and, and adapt in the face of a, an immediate problem to sort out an immediate problem but russia's yet to show any real capability to sort of think ahead and think well where where's it going what's coming next how do you integrate drones for example how do you do other other bits and pieces if they've thought that then what else might they be thinking and so on and so forth but just generally a few points from from this morning that jack was that jack was making points he was making he thinks that the worst thing that can happen now from the international community is a sense of triumphalism this idea that Oh, isn't Russia so stupid? They've they've not gone very far at all. It took them a year to take back Moot, blah, 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 blah. He said that is, it might on one side be quite attractive and we want to hang on to that. We like to think that. He said it's not, it's not entirely fair because Russia are prepared to take the price for the minimal gains that they have achieved. And he said they are now, there's a 30K defensive zone behind the lines as they are at the moment. These are hardened positions, trenches, bunkers, headquarters, concreted in. They've tapped into the Ukrainian telecom system. So the telecoms are, if not totally secure, they are much more reliable than um, you might otherwise find on the on the battlefield. And those lines run very, very far forward. So they're only using military means and laying line, as in phone line and what have you, um, or other means for the last few kilometres. So, you know, that's, that's a quite a tough nut to crack. So he's just he's making the point that they are bedding down. It looks like they are all but spent. They've transitioned onto the defensive. It looks like they're going to try and hang on to the gains that they've got. There's no real effort there to go to go further. But yes, he said triumphalism is is not great. The most important thing right now from the international community is to see through on the promises that have been made. Not only the promises pledging equipment, but also ramping up the industrial base to support those natures of equipment that will be destroyed. Some of them will be the training systems for the the people fighting, for the engineers, for the logisticians, all the rest of it. So all those kind of, if you like, boring but important bits that you really have to get right. So he said that's where the international community should really be looking at the moment. And he just said that there are two narratives going on at the moment. On the one hand, we can see And these are both true to a degree or to a very great degree. On the one hand, we look at Ukraine as a as a country that's greater innovating, that is being given lots of kit and training and all the rest of it. And that's fantastic. And they've they look terrific. And there's all this training going on. But equally, and this came from weeks that um, that Jack and his team spent out in Ukraine speaking to very senior military people and visiting, I think, 10 brigades of Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military. So, you know, a really good cross section. The other narrative 
as he saw it, the other reality, if you like, is that the vast majority of these, the people that are fighting are young Ukrainian men and women who have little to no prior military experience, but they have all the morale and the desire to fight, the motivation to fight for their country. But, you know, whilst but those two narratives could be very true or could be true, it's knitting them together that is tricky. And just on, on the, fo- the foe they are facing, as we've been talking about, and Bakhmut is a good example of this, that Russia, what Russia seemingly still cannot do is knit the forces together. The regular army that was experienced, the regular army that's brand new recruits, Wagner, the Donetsk, Luhansk People's Republic, all the other private groups, all the rest of it, they just don't talk well together. They don't coordinate. So they were finding that where they go forward, they might have some tactical success, but then they find that the flanks are exposed because they've not been able to work with their you know, other other units, their left and right, and so they have to have to pull back. So there's this kind of sort of two-step-forward, one-step-back type motion, which obviously still results in one-step-forward, which it might be what we've seen bearing out on the battlefield. And Jack was just making the point at this, at this uh, defence conference this morning that command in the Russian military at the moment... You'd like it to go across, so left to right. If you can imagine you're facing the enemy, you want command, you want it to be knitted together to the unit to your left, the unit to your right, even if they're not the same cat badge as you, etc., etc. Command in the Russian army goes backwards up to a headquarters and then across. And so this, this creates friction between the units there at the sharp end. And he was saying that if presented with multiple threats across multiple sectors, the Russian command system breaks down. They just can't react quickly enough to those different challenges all appearing at the same time. And he was, he was suggesting that that is, that is where you, potentially any Ukrainian counteroffensive might look like going for those, going for the seams. So it might not be a, a deep thrust into enemy territory, another sort of Kharkiv 2 race across the uh, countryside, but it might be multiple incursions across the front presenting all these problems all at the same time for the Russian command system. There will be more over the next couple of days. I'll um, I'll dial back in and uh, bring some more stuff tomorrow. If there's anything that, that sort of catches my eye. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Roland, just before we... I know we said we'd go to Chris Stapps next, but can I come to you just very quickly? You're obviously just back from a reporting trip to Ukraine. Then Dom talked about the fighting ability of the Russian army, the its the problems it has with its command system. Um, I just wanted to ask you, did you get a sense of how the Ukrainian soldiers um, spoke about their enemy and, and thought of them? What, what were their attitudes? I mean, not particularly emotional, really. You know, uh, you do sometimes ask you know in conversation what do you make of the guys on the other side and do you know who you're fighting or is it just grey figures on the horizon you don't know what their unit is or if it's Wagner or if it's the army or whatever I mean they said the guys I spoke to this time kind of said that the Russians have changed like they've got much better at using small unit tactics so they seem to be saying like these notorious kind of human wave things have dried up so much kind of more sensible use of men, more cunning, things like that. But then the story was from there, so I look, they're adapting all the time, so are we. And that's been going on since the beginning of the war. I found, in general, back in Chassivyar this time, in the greater kind of, basically in, in the Bakhmut salient, but not in Bakhmut itself, the mood was considerably more confident, I would say than it had been there in exactly the same place, I would say, back in January, when there was a real sense of foreboding, a sense of we're in real trouble, 
we're going to have to go. Definitely a sense of restored confidence, a sense of certain insouciance, calmness, kind of this air of we kind of know what we're doing, really. That was a significant change, I thought. But I would, I would say that absolutely is not the same thing as kind of gung-ho triumphalism. I think that's kind of sometimes walked out for the public or for us, for Western journalists, whatever, you know, we are, you know, we will destroy them, they will retreat, all of that. I mean, I think everyone believes that, everyone believes they're going to win. But I think the the squaddies I view, I think, of this battle is quite, it's quite nuanced. And I think when you're there, kind of on the battlefield, you know, you realise the reality is in a way, like much less exciting than it is on the internet, if you see what I mean. So I was talking about panic, right? They, you know, when when that offensive started in in Bakhmut, the you know the Russian military bloggers were kind of predicting the the grand offensive everywhere, and they were seeing threats behind every corner. And for about a couple of hours, they seemed convinced that there were you know Ukrainian spearheads breaking through left, right, and centre all over the front, which wasn't true. And I think also we here in the West are also guilty of kind of getting a bit overexcited about about what was happening I think out there when you're in the trenches when you're in the tree lines that kind of bisect the the Donbass countryside it's quite clear that it's a difficult business taking ground it's a long process it's a complicated process so the idea things are just going to suddenly change overnight doesn't doesn't really um, hold water does that make sense yes I think so thank you very much uh, Roland for joining us and it's good to have you back in the UK um, Chris Tapps, thank you so much for joining us again. It's really good to have you back on the podcast. Before we get, get into um, what you've been working on, would you just like to reintroduce yourself to um, some of our newer listeners? Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Tapps I'm a Latvian journalist. I've been to Ukraine a couple of times. I make a podcast called The Eastern Border that started out as trying to explain Soviet history and culture to Westerners because I'm from Riga, Latvia. And, well, since the war started, I've been only covering that. You've been writing for Foreign Policy, the online magazine, about Russia's convict soldiers. And you're, you talk quite a bit about the about Russian prison culture, where that comes from and its implications on, on the battlefield and in the Russian army. Before we get into that, could you just talk about why you chose to write about this? What, what, what drove you towards, towards writing this article? Because I obviously read a lot of Western media and... I just noticed that there is very little information about this prison culture thing, which in essence is a, a huge part of, of all of post-Soviet culture because of, of gulags and of Stalin instead and everything because of the 90s as well. And, and sometimes when I see some Western experts making some, uh, making some kind of broad, broad statements and predictions and then they just ignore, for example... Uh, like I mentioned in the article, uh, the Institute for Study of War just ignored the most important part of Prigozhin's explanation, and then they were baffled by what Prigozhin said. Meanwhile, for everyone else in these parts, it was obvious, and, well, we weren't baffled, and that could lead to Westerners making wrong uh, predictions and making mistakes about the whole war, maybe not understanding everything as, as well as they should. And, yeah, no one had done it, and I thought it would be really important, because I think this whole idea of this prison culture and how Putin relates to it if I, I think that some people would have been less surprised even at the beginning of the war if they knew what this would be all about because it's way way deeper than you know you can see in some organized crime movies or something it truly is somewhere out there and 
it touches everyone here in the post-Soviet society, and we're trying to get rid of it in a way, because that passing is a good thing, but it is there, these uh, so-called panyatia. Well, let's let's get into it. For people who don't know anything about the Russian prison culture, where would you start explaining it? The idea is that during the Stalinist era, when the gulags happened, where basically at one point about one quarter of the whole country of the giant Soviet Union had either been to prisons or knew someone who were there, had suffered from all sorts of persecutions. Yeah, back then, as the prisons grew, the systems inside them also changed. Basically, it wasn't just enough, uh, it wasn't just enough to, you know, obey the administration, the administration couldn't run everything, so organized crime to control, and they built their own weird, very perverse system of laws and rules and a totally alien system of understandings of how to criminals should act and how this whole prison society should be organized. And of course, there was involvement from these prison authorities and everything, but it's basically just a, a set of unwritten laws and paradigms about how to act, and they are very oriented on organizing, organizing the life of the organized crime and organizing life in the prison itself. It has a very strict case system, which you can't almost no almost at no point you can move up and it's a very strict and rigid system so it, it's basically all about that and it, but it's based on brutality and not on something that would be harshly written down the word panyatsia comes from the word panyats which is to understand and they should be easily understandable these laws and notions as i like to translate panyatsia here and then people just adapt their lives with it. But the case system, basically, all this happens down is that on top you, you have the lawful thieves or thieves of law. That they are on the very, very top. Around them are the blatnoi or blatnui. Basically, that higher-sized circle, then there are mujiki or men who just, they're not career criminals, just like the guys above them, but they still kind of observe these kind of panyachi a lot, but they do not cooperate with the prison administration in any way or form. Then there are kazli, who are basically bit lower than Muziki, but Kazli means billy goats, and these are the guys who actually do cooperate with the administration a bit. For example, they will go out and, you know, wash the dishes or be a librarian or something. They get beaten up often. And the lowest of the low are Petuhi, or uh, roosters by Brazil, and that's where the most huge brutality ever comes in in this whole system, because once you are one of these roosters, once you fall to the bottom, and there are stupid amount of rules, truly stunning and ridiculous, and these rules are also insane. Basically, all of the Russian prison system, from which Wagner is recruiting everyone, and now Russian army is starting to do so as well, because Wagner ran out. That's where they, that, that's where they are, I mean, just all send it. It, it all is so tied to this, because, you know, you can't really have all these prisoners coming in and not leave their mark within this whole system and their understandings of how life should work. And these things are outside of prison walls, and they're like, they're, they're forever, and they're extremely deep. And even now, we also can see when these Wagner people, Wagner prisoners who go out of the prison, who have served the six-month term and somehow survived, they return back and they commit a lot of crimes and, and they already start to even... They start to survive the 90s, basically. You know, the organized crime is becoming stronger and stronger. So once again, these cultural notions are ever increasing in importance in, in the whole society. And people, everyday people, just like back in the Soviet era, you know, everyday people are sort of forced to respect them. We, we just kind of learn them by osmosis. There's a lot of words which you use in our Latin slang, which come from these prison terms and everything. So many terms, many many actions, many modes of thinking even. And a lot of, for example, Eastern, Eastern European homophobia definitely comes from these prison notions because that is also a perverse 
think of this. It's just it, it's it's an extremely extremely huge, gigantic topic. But just understand that it's uh, these notions, these prison laws. They are not just something that organized crime do. They are understood by everyone in the post-Soviet sphere. And that's by the way what Prigozhin was saying at that point, which um, Western experts ignored. See, on April the ninth, Prigozhin answered a question asked to him about uh, his one of his media about what does he think about the fact that Wagner can no longer recruit prisoners and that those prisoners will now be recruited by the regular army. And Prigozhin stated that uh, it was always known that we, the Wagner group, respect Panyatsi and we have a living by them because truly everyone knows that in the Russian society everyone knows these Panyatsi these notions and it is a thing that's in our blood and now, you know, they make roosters serve together with honorable musics in the regular army and that is horrible. I would have never done that. And to me, what he just said makes perfect sense because of the slinger and everything because what he's saying is that yeah, it, it, it would be extremely bad for these soldiers to organize among themselves if uh, one of them would be mostly uh, muziks and others would be petuks because petuks are literally the untouchable. So here's a little example of why this matters. Thank you, Kristaps. You talked then about how the Wagner Group famously have been uh, recruiting from Russian prisons. We've seen quite a few videos of Yevgeny Prigozhin inviting people to fight for Wagner for, for six months. And how, how do, I mean, it was interesting earlier on in this episode hearing some of the command issues in the Russian army between Wagner and the regular army and how, as Dom mentioned, you know, that the seams on the front between these two, between these two groups are, are not always that happy. How do you think recruiting from the prisons, rec- recruiting prisoners from this prison culture impacts on the morale and the fighting ability of Wagner? And also, how do you think that impacts on them ser- serving alongside the regular Russian army? Well, for one, Prigozhin obviously recruits from prisoners for Wagner Group and always has recruited because he himself has been to prison for 10 years. And that was back in the Soviet era, where those traditions were even stronger and even more brutally enforced. So that alone is interesting, since if we're talking about Ukrainian psyops, if you if you put them that way, I recently, I think a couple of months ago, there was this Ukrainian lawful thief. I can read his tattoos because, again, these prison tattoos—that's a very real thing, and you have to have them in a certain way. And he claimed that Trigozhin was with him and that he was on this rooster case. Now, there is this twofold issue here. Number one, I will not, uh, I'm not so stupid because I have to live here to accuse a lawful thief of lying. That, that would be very dumb of me. But so will no one else. And that's the thing, because Trigozin hasn't really shown his prison tattoos or, or his story, or maybe has, he has had, him, had them removed. But now everyone's quite interesting, because this is the sort of thing that by Panaxia, by these prison laws, he should uh, have to go and find out uh, this, who this person is and literally shoot him and, and protest with every possible action. Because according to these prison laws, if you don't do that, then you fall into this uh, situation and there's, there's a lot of trouble. And again, because of how this whole system is ingrained into the Russian society, are not exactly fond of him, which is why he doesn't personally command, command anything. He's just this PR face while everyone else is commanding, although Prigozhin has wanted to. Because again, what if accident, What if he is accidentally one of these roosters and then you later found out he was, and if you've shaken his hand, that means you are one forever as well, and what if you go to prison? Which is a very real activity, because if you know the regular, the regular army, they also recruit from the poorest regions of Russia. 
in those regions who were like Buryatia and those places there because of all over economic depression that's going on there, or lack of jobs, or lack of infrastructure and everything, a lot of teenagers already understand that, well, they, they have no other choice, so they're just going to go and start living by Panyatsev even before going to prison. They form up the gangs. The movement is called AUE, or A-U-E. You can also just Google it up. It's a huge phenomenon of, of youth violence. And they, a lot of Buryats also probably just have been previously living by these Panyatsev still. And his, uh, like, this situation there, the more I tell you, the more weirder it sounds, but it truly is a part that, for example, we in Latvia and in the Baltics in general have tried to systematically remove from our society in general and tried to more kind of westernize and such, but obviously no such thing has happened in Russia. So the morale is that, yeah, if you are not sure if the person next to you is one of these petuks, then you don't want to, you know, give him a hand, because that's bad, that's automatically automatically below everything else. This is why, for example, uh, Pegosin also promised the people who were ill with HIV or uh, hepatitis C, who are also considered impure, you know, that they could serve and that then they would get their treatment. However, then in the battlefield, Wagner group marked them with a special bracelet and, you know, just uh, not get dirty themselves. A lot of the Wagner group medical officers just did not, uh, basically just did not at all give them medical attention. And also, if he had forcibly recruited, recruited someone who was truly from the higher up uh, case in the system, from the Blatley, then yeah, for those guys, it's totally dishonorable uh, for, for even to or somehow work together with these uh, authorities. For example, they would not be happy about, about the army situation at all. It also dishonors them. It's a very complex structure, truly, and it, it just that this war and the fact that they're being recruited and being forced together by someone whom they can't trust, this sort of causes... A dichotomy because usually, well, all the cops, by the way, also know these prisoners. Everyone knows them, except maybe for the very youngest generation. But this coming back, and it kind of puts in these brutal prison laws into this Russian army culture and puts puts it right up there in the center, and it increases violence in the Russian army, and because and it also increases the, the cruelties that they do, and sort of makes it easier for people to do war crimes because again, you. You respect these prison authorities in, in Russia, especially if you are from the poorer regions and you want to, you know, look up to them because once the war ends, what what you're going to do? And you, probably some of these guys can get you a job in some sort of gang or a nice office, so you want to look up to them as well. It, and it's a mess, and this this causes a lot of discipline issues inside inside Wagner because already, as many of you know, you know, there's a lot of talk online on these Russian social media boards about the old Wagner, the good one that has was actual mercenaries without this prison system. And a lot of these people who have been actually competent, they refuse to extend their contracts because they, they do not accept they do not accept these panyatsia because I have heard complaints that a lot of people complain that this is just turned into some sort of prison gang, much less than a military unit. And the regular army, well, they're going to have to deal with the very same things, lack of discipline, increased amounts of violence, rowdiness, way more alcoholism, and just people who are... Well, but discipline is just uh, discipline is out of the question, and there there are going to be a lot of people who actively will just uh, refuse to do any orders. They're just going to report that they've they've done them, and that's about it. Thank you very much, Kristaps. I'm going to have to move us on slightly just because we're starting to run out of time. But that was a fantastic intro, I think, to a very complicated topic, which which we'll have to come back to. Roland, before we go to final thoughts, it'd be 
good to hear some of your thoughts about what Kristaps has been talking about. I mean, you've reported and lived in Russia for, for, for many years. Does a lot of that ring true to you? How, how Did you see much, much examples, much, many examples of, of this prison culture in, in, in your reporting? I mean, not a great deal. I mean, the like, it's absolutely true that, you know, Russian prison culture has these very deep roots in, in the gulag and up until the kind of 1990s, the Vordivizakornia, these thieves-in-law who sit at the top of that tree, were massively powerful. They were the original kind of Russian mafia until people talk about Russian mafia. Their power kind of was diluted by the fact that after the fall of the Soviet Union, if you weren't gonna, if you weren't gonna continue to observe this, you know, this panyatya, as as we were saying, that says you absolutely cannot have any cooperation whatsoever with the state, or well, that's not really a recipe for survival. You know, if you're an organized crime boss, the sensible thing to do if you're an organized crime is to kind of go legit, kind of like blur the line, put on a suit, and so on. So you know, kind of. I remember during my reporting time in Moscow, there would be these occasional assassinations in Moscow of these really big names, these really famous gangsters who, you know, spent their entire lives living by these understandings and and were known as really, really big fish. And occasionally they'd still come out and kill each other. But um, if you spoke to people who kind of knew this world, kind of, you know, criminal lawyers who had worked in this world and kind of understood the prison system... their view was kind of that this is a culture that is on the wane um, in a way, in, in that sense, in, in, in the sense of it being the, a, a dominant part of, of you know, the organised crime scene, things like that. Just the need to... Prison culture had to adapt in the same way as every, every other part of society had to adapt when the, when the Soviet Union collapsed. But that said, yes, I mean, it is endemic and, and Evgeny Prigozhin has indeed spoken very openly and like, since the beginning of his recruitment campaign in prisons he was talking about how he would have a completely separate battalion for the so-called roosters these lowest of the low who are basically treated as sex slaves by everyone else because no one else can can serve with them that, that was a question he was asked by a journalist when he started publicly recruiting from prison what about those guys oh we'll put them in a different battalion now i don't think that battalion actually exists because i've never seen any evidence of it that was just that was his answer to that question and you know the Russian army does have a a deep problem with brutality of it of its own and, and its own kind of informal thuggish rules that we use to enforce discipline in the lower ranks in the absence of you know a really competent non-commissioned officer corps that was called Yedovshina I can well see kind of the old you know, you talk about the old Wagner. Sorry, David, I know, I'm, I know I'm running on a bit, but I think it's true. I mean, I, I'm not intimately involved in Wagner in any way, but the old Wagner, if, if you want to call it that, was made up of hardened mercenaries, you know, professional dogs of war who, you know, went from place to place fighting, you know, whether it was in Ukraine or Syria or Libya. And that is, you know, that's its own kind of thuggish culture, but it, it, it's, it's quite distinct from the prison culture. So, yeah, those, those are my, my brief observations on that. Thank you very much, Roland, Kristaps and Dom. Can I just come to each of you very, very quickly for your final thoughts? Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. Very quickly, uh, the stuff about Belgorod, that fits a recent pattern that we've been saying and others have been saying. These are all shaping operations, we think, by the Ukrainians. So we should expect to see more and different types of attacks so from ground, in the air, maybe even at sea, Sevastopol. Looking, looking juicy there, and in different locations, up and down the line, perhaps even over the line inside Russia. So all these little probes just to keep 
Russia on the back foot conceptually. They don't know what's going to come, where it's going to be. Is this the start of something? Is it the diversion? So all these are a pattern of shaping operations. So I wouldn't expect to see this Belgorod thing develop into much more. But there will be other odd stuff happening around the bazaars. I, I have no doubt at all over, the, over in the very short time. Thank you, Dom. Chris Stamps, would you like to go next very quickly? Yes, very quickly. I agree with Roland that, of course, these Finiaki change. And I, again, very short time, many details. But about how they change, they sometimes change for the brutal ways as well. But this new Aouye movement, I think they might be actually coming back. And that's my observation in the article. But one of the worst ways how they changed was back in 2019, I think, uh, that one of these meetings of Vorid decided that because of all the police brutality in prisons and mass administration rapes and torture, uh, they declared that if the administration rapes you as part of torture, then you do not become one of these petoks. This is a real thing there. It is just truly scary and, and bizarre, but yeah, sadly, I think that we're taking a look at them, them returning because the organized crime is just going to go back in power with the criminalization of the society, which is truly a sad thing. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, Chris Stapps. Roland, would you like the very final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think like Dom, I'm kind of, I'm still watching and waiting for the ground offensive. Maybe that's not what we should be doing. Maybe the sensible thing is to say, look, the Ukrainians will exploit success where it happens and, and be opportunistic. But I can't shake this <laughs> sense of suspense, really. They, look, they, they still haven't committed these great, big, shiny new brigades Right, you know, the, the, where are the challenges? Where are the leopards? At some point, they have to go in, and I, I completely agree with Dom. I mean, I think all these kind of alarming little things happening, you know, the kind of counterfisher out back moot suddenly, you know, then this, it, it all seems designed to, you know, keep the Russians guessing, keep them um, off balance. And Dom was talking about what Jack Watling was saying about the, the Russian command's problem. It's this very vertical command structure that struggles to respond to multiple threats it all fits into that understanding of of how the russians work and how the ukrainians might seek to exploit that so yeah i will be watching and waiting and sometime in the coming weeks i'm sure we'll wake up to some very big news ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube... Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Emily Hill.